Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Yeah, and the truth is, do you want to change that about yourself? That's what Russell has to decide. You know, anytime you have sex addiction, you have to contemplate what infrastructure do you need, what support do you need to begin to get healthy. And tonight, I'm going to be talking with an amazing author, uh, Sam Louie, who authored Passport to Shame, From Asian Immigrant to American Addict. And he's going to talk a little bit about what it's been like in the Asian culture because he believes addiction has, has been generational, that, that the Chinese culture is prone to addiction Uh, And certainly, like other cultures, when you transfer to a new culture, there is so much stress. There is so much shame. There is so much um, stigma that can come with that, that it increases the shame factor, which, of course, we know increases the need to possibly medicate with gambling, with drugs with alcohol, and with sex. And so he has lived this experience. And the beautiful thing is that he also has become a healer. And so his book is divided into three different categories or chapters or sections. And he tells you about how did this happen to him? What was the addiction like? And how did he become a wounded and yet recovered healer? So I'm going to just welcome him right now. Sam, uh, I am so thrilled to have you on uh, to talk about your book because we haven't 
read enough about addiction in the Asian culture. So tell us a little bit about what made you decide to write this book. Well, thanks for having me on, Carol. Um, I think part of it was my own journey and to a certain extent some of the experiences I was seeing in some of my more, whether it's Asian clients or ethnic clients in general, that there was a common thread of how uh, culture does play a, a role in the addictive and traumatic experiences, whether it's immigration experiences or the disconnect with more traditional immigrant parents um, who come from a different worldview and you're trying to grow up and be more American, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and in addition to that, some of the, because I was the oldest in the family, I was the one who was in a, embarking on what seemingly could seem like experiences we take for granted, but being the first to do anything, like to go to mm-hmm. elementary school, to middle school, to high school, to college, and to try to do this on your own can be very daunting. And not just college, the work world thereafter, because once again, my parents were immigrants. They took on immigrant jobs, and I did not have a lot of um, feedback or guidance from them. Well, you know, you you referenced that, of course, you're supposed to assimilate into the American culture. And at the times, your parents really helped you with that. But at the time, they also would hold you back. I mean, and when when they wanted you to do that, um, they had you actually forfeit some of who you were to assimilate. And, boy, that feels so disingenuous, and yet they were doing the best they could. Could you give us a little bit about some of the struggles you had from growing up with, partially with your grandparents and working in their restaurant to changing your name? Um, Yeah, Kara, I'm glad you reminded me at the top of the show about the three different sections. I forgot them. I talked about the Asian immigrant experience. Mm -hmm. That's one section. Mm -hmm. The addiction experience as an American, quote. And then the third part, my journey to transition from that as a wounded healer. Um, As a part of helping to understand this, I'm going to read just one paragraph from the beginning of my book. Please do. a little bit more of what you're asking. I hate myself. This was one of my earliest thoughts as a Chinese boy in the United States. I wasn't white like those I saw on television. I wasn't black like my peers on the playground. I was an Asian immigrant. I was an outsider, a foreigner, also known as the other. It was 1976 and I was four years old. I hated looking different, speaking differently, and having different customs and traditions from mainstream America. So one of the assimilation process was changing my name. My parents knew um, an American couple, (laughs) their only American couple, right, and asked them what would be three good, quote, American names for my three boys. And they said, how about, Sam, Ken, and Fred, just like that. So tic-tac-toe, in the blink of an eye, our Chinese names, our original names were 
made into our middle names. Our Chinese names became our middle names. And then I became Sam. My middle brother became Ken. And my youngest became Fred. And it was a way to feel better about being in this culture, especially when I was starting school. And even though I was Sam, maybe legally it wasn't fully changed, so sometimes they would use my middle name. They said, okay, and I knew they were starting to stumble, and I would get a little bit anxious because I knew they were about to say my name. Um, Fu Yen Louie, I said, no, it's Sam. Just keep calling me Sam, and I just remember feeling very blushing, blushing with embarrassment, and just wanted to hide because I just wanted people to accept me as American, as my, my, my classmate next to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I wondered about that because I, as I read, it was like you had this name, you had a new teacher, but she continued, or he, to call you by your old name, and you were very humiliated because it doesn't make sense to kids why you would have these names, and you had been teased in general for being Asian, and it just seemed like, it seemed like a very anxious time in your life where the teacher was not necessarily cooperating and or was confused. Now, did you think she was being confused, or do you think she wasn't cooperating? She didn't want to call you Sam. She wanted to call you Sam. Yeah, I think they were just confused because you know, whether it's legally on, on the class roll, right. the, the class roll call, it's going to say Fui and Louie, and I just had to say, hey, just call me Sam. So that's kind of hitting them out of left field, right? Um, Got it. And that, yeah, you were going to ask? No, that, that makes a lot of sense because I thought our teachers being spiteful to Sam. So I'm glad to hear that it was very, very confusing. But it did seem to create a lot of anxiety in you, um, both as you're entering puberty and trying to figure out where you fit in in the romance department with girls. And can you go into that? Because I believe that got into your sex addiction, did it not? Oh, a lot of stuff fed into the uh, sex addiction. Um, just to give you a little bit of context, our parents moved us to South Seattle in a part of the city that was, you know, known for crime. Um, my parents, my dad was a cook at a Chinese restaurant, and my mom worked as a waitress at a different Chinese restaurant. But I remember sometime around 8 to 10, 10 years old, me being the oldest of the three, I was tasked to take care of my two younger brothers when they went off to work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 8 to 10 is pretty young. At the time, everybody more or less was considered a latchkey kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything of it. I just know it's pitch black. We're in crime-ridden neighborhoods where um, sometimes news stories would show up <laughs> about, hey, that's our neighborhood. Uh, so there was this bit of terror going through. And when we talk about just finding ways to cope, I remember – Biting my nails, that's when I started biting my nails just constantly as a way to kind of just keep the anxiety at bay. My brothers and I would get zoned out and watch as much TV as we could on TV, video games, um, listening to hours and hours of music. Uh, Parents got department store catalogs, so just looking through, finding ways to distract myself, like, oh, look at this cool toy. It wouldn't be nice to fantasize about having that. 
-hmm. And then I think as you're referencing puberty, by that time, uh, once again, I'm really feeling insecure about my Asian-ness and wondering as an Asian male, would, quote, the predominant white or the black culture, because I was growing up in a black neighborhood, would the black culture like me in a romantic sense? Mm-hmm. Um, I should mention around that eight to 10 years of age, uh, we had stumbled across scrambled television mm-hmm. or pornography on television that was meaning scrambled. Hopefully listeners can understand what scrambled means. You can't see it, but kind of see it. You can hear it definitely because <laughs> you're not subscribing to it. Um, and, and in you know, some that, ways that makes it even more enticing because you can't clearly yeah. see it. And so you're fixated on it to see what you can see that you really can't see. Well, what's going on back there? And then there's nobody to talk to about this uh, in, in my family because parents are working and they're from a different culture where it's, they, their focus was just study hard and, and get good grades. Um, being a teenager around, I remember just watching movies and just being so entranced by beauty. Uh, there was this movie called Weird Science where these two teenage boys would create this model, right, this woman. Um, but even before that, even in very non, I would say even very non-sexual means, watching a lot of soap operas that obviously had some romantic this or that, but it wasn't, there was nothing, I don't remember ever seeing any, there, there wasn't anything very graphic, but what I learned from the soap operas was, whoa, when two people are kissing, this must be the ultimate expression of love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It's when they're being physical because this is what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And so the storylines with some of the soap operas, Days of Our Lives, so on and so forth, like really captiv- captivated me because like, oh, this must be what love is mm-hmm. when you can deal with somebody in a very physical sense. Mm-hmm. Combine that with what I saw and heard with scrambled television mm-hmm. and it set the stage for what I consider the lock and key to my addiction. All those other distractions, addiction, video games, those were nice, but once I found porn as a teenager, you know, prepubescent boy, mm-hmm. or or the allure of the, the sexual element, not even pornography, that was really what hooked me. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had to say, now Sam is a CSAC, correct? I know you're a, a licensed mental health counselor, but you're also a CSAC, and your book is so honest and so raw because, again, this book takes you through what it was like to be Asian in America and the transition that it created and the stress that was inherent and then being exposed to puberty like a lot of other boys and yet having that additional stress of not believing you fit in. And when you talked about, I think you had two different television shows that were very stimulating, both that one soap opera. And then what was the other show? Um, did I reference it in the book? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I referenced a lot of different shows. Okay. Well, it was, it, you know, like we watched, I think our mom even may have once, you know, Wonder Woman, what, what other shows were on? Charlie's Angels. 
Right. Anything with skin in it was like very, uh, I don't know what it was. and titillating. For, it, it didn't even have to be, uh, once again, I want to reiterate to folks that it didn't actually even have to be sexual. If I felt there was nurturing, uh, silver spoons, I think, was one where you notice the mom is nurturing the child. Yeah. Right? That, that, Brady Bunch, the mom, Mrs. Brady, is being very nice to the right. kids. And they're, they're all talking. That form of nurturing also really hit home. Mm-hmm. Well, you were so vulnerable because it is not it is not normal discussion for a man to say that he enjoyed a soap opera for that. But yet you really now have taken, you've taken a deep dive into what contributed and caused your anxiety, your medication, your addiction, and, of course, your recovery. And I just want to thank you for being so raw. That's what makes this book so good and so real. And I I, I would ask anybody who is wanting to read, really captures a young boy's journey through college as well as everything else to get Passport to Shame from Asian Immigrant to American Addict. Um, and that's obviously written by Sam Louie. And then I even thought to myself, I didn't know if we could really say your real name because you're, you're honest <laughs> about your siblings, your parents, your grandparents. I mean, you just really shared that of yourself. So at what point did you feel your addiction was uncontrollable? Uh, there were many moments. I think I minimized it. Uh, so, you know, I'm, as they said, I, I watched the scramble TV, got very fixated. I don't remember really getting hooked on pornography per se until later in my young adult years. Um, so in college, there was a lot of self-hating, like I'm not good enough to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. So I would try to find casual relationships or Anybody that wants, well, actually, one time I thought I wanted to be in a relationship with a woman, and the woman says, no, let's just have sex. Mm. So to my opinion, I felt like, okay, I guess this is all I'm good for. Nobody really wants to be in a relationship with me, so the sexual element is, this is it. This is all I have, quote, to offer anybody. And um, so that kind of started priming the pump, like, this is it. Just have one night stands, noncommittal. Sex. But even when I wanted to be in a relationship, even if the woman did want to reciprocate, there was a part of me that felt I can't. So I would end relationships, you know, they didn't last very long because I was really worried as they got to know me or potentially know me, they're going to find something's wrong with me. I'm not even talking about the addiction. They're just going to find me, me, my inner self, me as a person not not worthy to be with and, and just leave me, reject me, and end the relationship. So then there was that piece that was un- undergirding it. Mm-hmm. Got it. My first was in journalism, so that's when, like, the pornography and the addiction really started taking off. And even with journalism, I mean, there's an opportunity when your mother, trying to be as helpful as she could, discouraged you from being a journalist because she says there are no Asian journalists. 
you know, you're not going to see anybody on television. And you decided to do something else at that point. Uh, Asian men are a kind of a rare breed in television journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't see that reflected in Seattle, so she said, why would you do that? The only people they hire are Asian women, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Said, okay, that's right. So initially she wanted me to go into um, – teaching because teaching is a more honorable profession in the Asian culture. So mm-hmm. I said, okay, let's do that. But at the very end of my last year in college, I met another Asian American uh, student who was actually a journalist, meaning he was writing for the student newspaper. After graduating, he was going to work in a small city and write for the newspaper there. And he's like, hey, if you want to do this on the TV side, you know, I'm behind you, right? Uh, so having that level of uh, support from him, despite what my mom or my parents wanted from me, gave me enough uh, courage to venture off into that world, despite what heck I might get from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so continue on. I thought it was really fascinating, and so many sex addicts worry about this. Um you weren't circumcised, and that was another way that you knew you looked different. And so you chose at what age? As soon as I turned 18, that's legal, you're legal adult. <laughs> right. And so you decided I'm going to acclimate and be more like everybody else. It was, it was embarrassing to you not to be circumcised, and you had that procedure done. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we would take swim lessons. Our parents would take us to swimming lessons. And all three of us would never take a shower. We would run into the car, dripping wet, wet shorts, mm-hmm. Seattle cold weather, drive 15 minutes home, and then, uh, you know, take a shower or a bath. And I was like, why is that? I reflected back, why, why didn't we take a shower? It was right there. Like, it's not like our mom is preventing us from taking showers. And now I connected the dots. Like, oh, I didn't want to see anybody with our uncircumcised penises. That, like, I mean, how vulnerable, more vulnerable can you get? Well, absolutely. And, again, just a, a huge um, fear inside of you that that would show but again, you were different than everybody else. So I thought to myself, I have no no idea how painful that is, but I suspect it is. That's why we do it to babies when they can't feel to that degree. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought, you're really doing everything. And there was even a point, Sam, where you shared the fact that you were worried about penis size. And you spent time masturbating to elongate your penis and that would make sense physiologically that it does look bigger and it does look longer i think around fifth or sixth grade there was an older neighbor kid who threw us a playboy magazine right like hey if you got if you guys want a bigger penis you need to masturbate to this Mm -hmm. and i was like um okay, that makes sense to me. I want a bigger penis. And then you you think like, oh, gosh, when I'm looking at it, I'm getting an erection. It's bigger. Maybe I need to continue doing this Mm -hmm. to gain size. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for 
reminding me of that. <laughs> I found the book fascinating, again, because it was so vulnerable, it was so honest, and, you know, I will admit that people in our profession, because you and I do the same thing, we have a heart for kids, young adults, middle-aged people that, that suffer, suffer feelings of self-loathing for themselves. And that's certainly one of the feelings that Patrick Carnes says an addict will begin to feel. When they really get enrooted into their addiction, they hate themselves. And so I just saw where, you know, your life collapsed for a while. Um, based on I was my first uh, English son. I hate myself. Oh. Or English, Chinese, English, whatever it was. That's what I was interpreting mm-hmm. when we were here, when we first got here in the U.S. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just kind of surveying the scene. Mm-hmm. And so tell our listening audience, because we are approaching um, a wrap-up. Oh, yeah. How how bad did it get, your addiction, and what pulled you out of it? Pornography multiple times a day, no big deal, right? Uh, then when I would travel to international destinations, escorts, prostitutes, and at the time, I didn't even know. I'm, I'm now reflecting back. Uh, I think some of these women, I have a pretty strong probability that they were probably sex trafficked. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, yeah, I, I, so it got pretty bad, and I think the divorce, I was, in my first marriage, that kind of was a wake-up call of sorts, like, oh, mm-hmm. now there's a legitimate issue, because I was hiding everything, I would do all the uh, cognitive distortions we talked about, I was in denial, I rationalized, all guys do it, hey, I got stressed from work, blah, 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 blah. But I never understood the concept of addiction, possibly because this was close to around the year 2000. And how can anybody, in my head, how can anybody be addicted to to the sexual release, right? Um, And remember, I'm also coming from a cultural perspective where in the Asian culture, at least traditional ways of thinking, the way my parents are taught, there is no such thing as an addiction. If you're gambling compulsively, drinking compulsively, doing anything that's compulsive or addictive, there is something wrong with you. You must have a character flaw that you can't control this. Mm-hmm. So that was already already entrenched from within. So that kind of just added to the cognitive distortion. But, yeah, after the divorce, that snapped me uh, to a place of reality that I had to I just had to come face to face with what I was doing, why I was, because remember, I had no idea why I was doing what was, what I was doing. I had not entered therapy. I just thought there was something wrong with me. I just thought that I was like inherently screwed up, mm-hmm. right? Like there, like this is just how I was wired. Like there is no way to change this. Is is the way I was thinking. Well, and in addition, you grew up knowing that you had generations, previous generations that had addictions to gambling and working and all sorts of infidelity. You know, so it was almost inherent in in the Asian lifestyle, or so you thought. So tell the listening audience what happened to your marriage. Uh, It disintegrated pretty quickly, and I know divorce happens so readily now, 
But at the time, I was the only person, actually, I take that back. I only knew one other person out of all the Asian people I knew that also had gone through a divorce. Mm. <laughs> so that's, to me, that's a lot of people that I know from sports and school and my, 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 my friends and neighborhood. Only one other person got divorced. I don't know what his reasoning was, but combine that with my addiction, um, that was a pretty heavy toll on me. I'm sorry, I forgot the question. Uh, what happened? Why did you get divorced? Oh, uh, my wife found me late at night masturbating to pornography. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we were going to an Asian-American church. Fortunately, the pastor was a strong proponent. He's a Chinese-American. I think it was like second or third generation, so he's more Americanized. Very strong proponent of therapy. And because of that level of um, trust I had in him, mm-hmm. that was my first foray into getting help. Fantastic. And so let's let's talk about the wounded healer. Did you decide, you know, I, let, me, let me preface it with saying that I believe in post-traumatic growth. And I think that anybody who's listening to this show, be it an addict, a partner, a couple, a family, you can get over to post-traumatic growth, but it entails working on yourself and making the choice to do better, to be better, to care better, I mean, for yourself and for others. So how did you get there to post-traumatic growth? Let's start with the pain because I don't want to minimize the pain, not just the pain of losing my then wife, but she was uh, – Korean-American, her parents were Americanized to a certain degree where they got their, um, uh, at least their master's degree or doctorate degree here in the U.S. So they were Americanized. They could speak English. Keep that in mind. My parents could not. Mm -hmm. So I could relate to them as what I considered real parental figures. They could talk to me in a way where they understood me from a way that I've always wanted to be understood. They recognized that I, I was working in journalism, and they understood why I would have to move to, to advance in my career, mm-hmm. whereas my parents were, they didn't understand the system. They would say, well, why don't you just work at the TV station down the street? Mm-hmm. So I can't do that. I'm just starting off, Mom, Dad. So it was a big loss of losing um, the in-laws sister-in-law, brother-in-law. So it was, it was, it was like I lost this whole family. Mm-hmm. So there was this huge grief period. Eventually, after grief therapy, I went back to my normal life in terms of journalism, going through the routine. And eventually, it just kept gnawing at me. I was uh, 35,000 feet up in the air in an airplane, returning from a journalism fellowship, and I just surrounded by other stellar journalists, and they had said something that really spoke deeply to me, saying, Sam, we can really see that this is what you embody. Mm-hmm. And have you really ever considered doing something with this mm-hmm. gift, with this knowledge, with this desire? And I said, I don't know. This is all I know how to do is do journalism. I don't know if I want to take the risk to go to grad school. I didn't consider myself a good student. But, you know, 
God continued to push me there uh, or encourage me down that path. And eventually things just started to um, align themselves where, so this is, I think, five years after the divorce where I enrolled and started my first class in marriage and family therapy mm-hmm. when I was in Southern California at the time. Wow. So it's it had to do with spirituality and wanting more for your life. And, and you were a pretty successful journalist. Yeah, I, w- I worked into worked in Los Angeles, but um, you know, there's this concept or this phrase called "fire in the belly." Mm-hmm. I was a paycheck player. Mm-hmm. You know, you pay me, I do my job. Mm-hmm. But, but it really resonating from within, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the therapy world, it was this unquenchable desire to continue to know more, to learn more, to grow. And I knew that the fire was more real and true because regardless of where my income would wax and wane, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter that I made a fraction of what I had made in journalism. I still had a, um, a perseverance that if, it was, if I was flipped the other way and I was working in journalism, making, let's say, 30 to 40 grand, no, I'm out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm out. There's no way I'm working in this field for that. I'm... Uh, and, and so through time, I just continued to, uh, that's when I knew this was more of a um, a vocation of sorts or a vocation of sorts or a calling. And now are you feeling as a CSAT, as a licensed mental health counselor, as an addiction specialist, are you feeling that fire in the belly? Yes. I have to, um, what's the right word? I don't want to say temper it <laughs> because it, it's, it's always there. I, I think the, the, the challenge is there's no one, one size fits all box that I can check off to help clients. So that may be the most vexing part. My healing, my recovery can be very different from, from somebody else's, uh, you know, self-care activities, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. I'm always trying to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. Very good. And I wish, a, I wish there was an easier way to, <laughs> to say, here, this is it. This is the magic formula to follow. Mm-hmm. And yet your book, in part, was a self-exploration into – why am I here today? And I thought it was very inspirational. I think it will help a lot of people um, who are different, who are othered, to feel good. And Spoken Not Broken, it, tell us about that book. Uh, this is a, uh, a collection of poetry that I didn't plan to publish. I was just writing it as a part of my own healing Mm. And so Mm -hmm. uh, so start off as one poem, continued to uh, grow enough that I had enough published. Mm -hmm. And so one poem that I really like is Redefining My Shame. It's very short, but I'll read it here. Redefining My Shame. I used to hate my shame, run away from it, hide from it, ignore it, deny it, pretend it's not there. Now 
child, I embrace it. No more shame in naming it, sharing it, using it to my advantage, helping others heal. Where I once whimpered, I now boldly proclaim it. Where I once drowned in it, I've now harnessed it. Like a mule, use it as a tool, redefined it. No longer a soul crusher. Use my shame, a light for others to escape self-blame. Wow. Wow, that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, again, tell our audience, how can they get that book? All the books are on Amazon. My most recent one, The Passport to Shame, was just uh, released by Central Recovery Press in January, just you know, a few weeks ago. So I'm very excited about it because it literally took five years because of COVID and supply chain issues. Right. Um, but, yeah, Smoking Not Broken, the, the poetry book, is also um, on Amazon. And I'm just thrilled to be able to hopefully use this message to continue to let others know not just about Asian or men, ethnic mental health, but, but part of this is also understand the masculine or the, the male mentality because so much addiction, we focus on the behavior or, let me rephrase, at least with the sex addiction, <laughs> that gets the biggest play, right? Like, like the header to a, to a movie, oh, my gosh, sex, sex, sex. But then when you look at the themes underneath, that's where the, the, the growth and the real journey begins, to be able to have the, the courage to look at our wounds, whether they were in childhood or young adulthood, whether it's with parents, with peers, with society, right? Right. Well, uh, Sam Louie, I want to thank you for coming on today. And, again, his book is Passport to Shame, uh, From Asian Immigrant to American Addict, and I would add to Recovering um, Healer. And um, I get that you don't want anybody to be stereotyped or anything to be generalized. Um, And that's where your poetry comes in because your poetry brings out what it was like for you and everybody else gets to decide what does that mean for them. Will you tell me one more time the name of that book? So remember, when you're looking for Passport to Shame, you can also look for Spoken Not Broken, Healing Through Poetry. And uh, it's a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better, Sam. And uh, keep coming back. Keep bringing me your projects. <laughs> Thank you again, Carol. Best to you. Oh, the best to you, too. Make it a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So as you can see, Sam has really made a decision to educate others after he goes through self-reflection. And we love that. That's how you get healthy. That's how it gets real. Um, you know, recovery is important. It, it is what brings you into that all-important post-traumatic growth. Now, you heard him. He did not say, oh, yeah, that fire in my belly for this. But I know that he definitely feels a real sense of purpose and passion. So now let me tell you what I'm going to be doing, and I really want you to think about this. I'm going to be doing the Help Them Heal for 10 to 12 couples, 
It is. It starts April second. It is in the middle of the day. It is. It's two o'clock Central Standard Time to three thirty, or as I say, because I'm Eastern, it's three to four thirty. Um, I, I want to say this is going to be a real opportunity for you to get to work with me in a group setting, which is so powerful. We're going to see everybody do work together. And you're going to say, I want what they have. And they're going to say, I want what she has or he has. Um, I'm going to make it safe. We're going to go through each chapter. And you're going to do the exercises as homework before the group and or in the group. So I'd love for you to take advantage of that. It, it, I can't talk about payment, but it absolutely costs nothing. <laughs> No, it does. But, I mean, it's relatively cheap. I just think it's really important for you to understand what it is that you want in your life and then go after it. That's April 2nd. That's for 14 weeks. And then for all my clinicians and coaches out there, I'm going to be doing a an early recovery couples empathy model training. That would be IRFM. April 10th through the 13th. And if you're listening and you aren't a professional, but you do work with sex addiction, I shouldn't say that. If you're listening and you're not licensed, but you're doing the work, you're helping men or women in churches, in communities, you can come join our training too. This is all about teaching couples how to restore their relationships. And it is live via Zoom, and it starts April 10th. It's four days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and a half day on Saturday. So that is uber exciting for me that um, I get to do another IRCAM training. Because, of course, I'm going to be doing IRCAM for ITAP, which trains CSAPs in May. So this work is getting around, and I absolutely love it. Now, my apology to Sam, I heard that alert, and I thought, what is going on? I looked at my do not disturb, and I went, it's on. But I think I may have (laughs) altered a a volumizer for the alert system. So my apologies to you, too, that you had to listen to that bing probably about eight times. Now, as I say at the end of every show, there will always be and only be one of you at all times. I want you to fearlessly have courage to be yourself, find safe people to be authentic and vulnerable with, and look at ways that you can give back, whether it's to your groups, to your community, to your faith, to your grandchildren, to your family, Um, and other loved ones. We all make a difference. So don't cheat yourself here. Know that you are making a difference in all sorts of ways or you wouldn't be listening to this show. I'm Carol the Coach, a.k.a. Carol Jorgensen Sheets, and we'll see you next week for more sex health with Carol the Coach. Now, as I say, please make it a good one.